Stay Current is a multimedia publication designed to keep healthcare professionals up to date on standards of care and new emerging ideas. This chapter is created and edited by Todd Ponsky, Alex Kassar, Alex Gibbons, and Ray Hengen, and is recorded and produced at Cincinnati Children's Hospital in Cincinnati, Ohio. Hey everyone, uh, today we have Dr. Samir Gadipali. He's a pediatric surgeon at Mott Children's at Michigan and he is also the co-director of the Pediatric Surgical Critical Care Program. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So the first thing I did is I collected questions from attendings and residents uh, around the country and the first one I got was please don't make the ECMO podcast about CDH so we're not doing that. Second question I got is have him tell us everything he knows about ECMO. Also not going to happen in the next 10 minutes. By the way, for the, for the listeners, the reason we're not going to talk about CDH, I will refer you to Dr. Stoller's podcast on congenital diaphragmatic hernia where we talk about the ECMO indications for those patients. Let's get started. What are the indications to get non-neonates on ECMO? Primarily, I, I'm going to focus on respiratory illness and sepsis. In respiratory, an indication for ECMO is really related to how much support you're requiring on a ventilator or a high-frequency oscillator. Once you get above a certain level, you have a concern that the continued damage that you would be doing to the lungs with barotrauma using high pressures to ventilate the lung would be better balanced by putting the lungs on more of a rest mode while you use ECMO to do the oxygenation and ventilation. So typically, uh, an indication would be that you could measure what's called a P to F ratio, which is how much PaO2 you get for an amount of FiO2 that's delivered to your body. A better measure than a PAE to F ratio incorporates what's called a mean airway pressure. And so like when you ventilate your lung, you are actually using a certain amount of pressure that's delivered to your lung at all times to keep your alveoli open. And that mean airway pressure is used in an equation called the oxygen index. And uh, that's a good way of determining if somebody has what's called acute lung injury or if it's progressed into acute respiratory distress syndrome. And so uh, typically in OI, an oxygen index, is calculated using the mean airway pressure multiplied uh, by the fraction of inspired oxygen multiplied by 100 so that you get the actual percentage and then divided by the PaO2. Another way of saying that is divide the mean airway pressure by the P to F ratio. So the OI of a 4 to 8 would be like a mild lung injury. OI of 8 to 16 is a moderate amount of support that's being required, and a severe OI would be anything above 16, which would give you like a 40% mortality. Say you're a trainee, and you call me in the middle of the night, and you say, hey, I've been contacted by uh, pediatrics, and they're concerned that this patient's going to require ECMO. One of my first questions to you is going to be, what's the OI? A lot of times you can just plug in the formula, you know, just type in oxygen index on Google and there's plenty of calculators, or you can figure out what the OI is. If it's above 25, I would absolutely consider uh, going on ECMO. If it's above 40, 
I would say, yeah, you should go on ECMO. There's obviously other factors that play into it. Uh, what is their heart function like? Uh, there are other adjuncts you could try before going on ECMO, such as prone positioning. They weren't on an oscillator before. You could consider putting them on an oscillator. There are other modes of a ventilator you could attempt. If somebody has elevated pulmonary pressures, a trial of nitric oxide may be worthwhile. Plus, there's additional things. Uh, do you have available circuits, and are you a center that performs ECMO, and is this patient transportable? So those probably play a role in terms of determining if a patient goes on ECMO. So I'm the resident. I call you in the middle of the night that I was called that there's a patient that may need to go on ECMO. What is the information you're going to want from me? So I'm going to need to know the oxygenation index. What else am I going to need to know? What are you going to want to grill me on? I'm going to say, have they done an echo and have they done an x-ray? The x-ray, I'm primarily looking for uh, things like, it, do you have adequate ventilation on both sides and do you have a pneumothorax? Is there a collapsed segment of the lung somewhere? Bronchoscopy may be helpful in terms of uh, getting rid of a mucus plug. I would ask them what pressors they're on. And that's primarily, in my mind, deciding on how advanced uh, is their disease process. And then their underlying reason why they're sick. Uh, is this primarily pneumonia, aspiration-related, or uh, infectious uh, versus a, a sepsis origin? When you're requesting an echo in these patients, what are you looking for? Uh, I'm looking for uh, hemodynamics, so I want to know what the underlying heart function is. If it's primarily a respiratory problem, the heart function is only compromised because you're on uh, fairly high ventilator settings and uh, don't have an intrinsic cardiac issue. If you have right ventric ventricular dilation, I would consider trialing some nitric oxide and seeing if that helps with uh, reduce some of the pressures. If you have LV dys dysfunction, left ventricular dysfunction, that to me is a lot more concerning, putting somebody on just venovenous ECMO, which is primarily what I would consider uh, for respiratory failure. For respiratory, when I call you in the middle of the night, I need to make sure I know the OI, I know the patient's history and his clinical progress, I have an echo or know if they've done an echo, and an x-ray. Yeah, and then it would be helpful to know where you have your central access so it can help. In my mind, I'm thinking, where am I going to cannulate? There are other okay. things I would consider if you're about to put them on ECMO or I'm driving, I'm driving in. I would say, okay, make sure they have a arterial line. If they need a chest tube, now is the time to put it in before I heparinize them. If they, if they don't have a Foley, I would consider placing it now prior to heparization. So there's definitely things that... Uh, I would do, you know, on my way in. Okay, um, I have a question. Samir, do you get a head ultrasound on all these patients? I try to if the time allows. So depending on how sick they are, if I can get a head ultrasound, I think it's helpful to have some prognostic value. And if they're young enough that you could actually uh, see some findings. If they had a grade two or lower, I would still probably put them on ECMO. Uh, because there, that would not be a contraindication for me. So I think the other thing with head ultrasounds is if you have a slightly older patient, the um, sutures have already fused and you won't necessarily get a good view and you're 
spending a lot of time in somebody who's acutely ill. Okay, and so to clarify, if they have a grade three intracerebral hemorrhage uh, or higher, then they would not be a candidate for ECMO? Yeah, I think you got to have a serious discussion on uh, where you're headed. Any other contraindications? I think if you have active bleeding from somewhere, uh, that would also be concerning for me. I think a few years ago even, I think a lot of people are concerned about how long uh, you have been managed on the ventilator. So a uh, typical thing was if you've been on for more than a week or two weeks, then we wouldn't put you on ECMO. I think that's kind of uh, going by the wayside in terms of uh, we would still consider, uh, we would consider it higher risk, but I think we would still place you on ECMO if we thought that that was a reasonable option. And it would just might take you longer for your lungs to recover but what we've re realized is that, especially with respiratory failure indications, that the lungs do, in fact, um, remodel and recover uh, over a long period of time. What other patients are not candidates for ECMO? Let's say prematurity, um, under 30 weeks, uh, uh, size of the patient, under uh, 1,200 grams. Uh, if you can't get a cannula in that size patient. I think uh, previous ECMO at that site may make it a challenge in cannulation. Those would be uh, some factors that would worry me. When you say previous ECMO at the same site, what are your criteria for, for recannulation in patients that you've decannulated and they decompensate soon after their decannulation? Redo ECMO is kind of a, a kind of a separate discussion on its own, but if a pre patient has previously had a right neck approach for ECMO cannulation, we would typically use an ultrasound to see if we can reattempt the right side again, perhaps lower down than the initial cannula replacement. If there was not a ligation, then perhaps we'd be able to enter below that area. Typically, we would do a venogram at the time of the cannulation to identify a pathway that actually went to the went down to the chest. So we would try to do this in the operating room rather than at the bedside in a pediatric ICU setting. If you're unable to identify a pathway on the right neck, I think attempting the left neck, I think, is an option for an emergency. But the problem is then you're ligating both drainage sites uh, from the from the brain the internal jugular veins, and I think that that becomes a little bit uh, higher risk in terms of uh, added pressures that the brain would see. If it was a larger patient, you could attempt a uh, cannula in the lower extremity. Uh, you could attempt a dual site cannulation if you were able to get a smaller cannula size in the neck. So I think uh, redo ECMO is challenging as it is, and I think having backup plans such as uh, a, a central cannulation uh, with cardiac surgery, um, I think it's worth a discussion up front. Moving on to sepsis, what is it that we're looking for in those patients? In order to differentiate sepsis, I think ECMO does a fantastic job for ventilation and oxygenation. So replacing the functions that you're primarily using the lung for. ECMO does not do as good of a job with uh, maintaining a systemic vascular resistance, which is sometimes the problem with sepsis. So if you told me that this patient uh, has concern for sepsis and is on multiple pressors, 
that are primarily being used to support a low blood pressure, typically a diastolic pressure that's really low, I would be a little bit more concerned about how well ECMO is going to work for you because it will do a good job of also helping manage some of the cardiac output. But when you have a low tone, the amount of flow you're going to require on sepsis is far greater. That may be 150 to 200 per kilo. And so you may need a larger cannula and you may potentially have to go on BA and potentially have to do a uh, central cannulation if you ask certain places. So I think I have a little bit more for reservation to go on ECMO for somebody who has sepsis. I would try other things and when those failed I would then proceed to ECMO. The next question I have for you is something that was very popular during our update course last year and that is institutional protocols or indications for eCPR. What are your criteria? That's an excellent question, and I think that's an evolving field. When you say eCPR, uh, typically we refer to the use of ECMO in a patient that's requiring uh, CPR, so cardiopulmonary resuscitation. The use of ECMO has been shown as an adjunct to just standard bystander CPR, which is typically done with ACLS protocol. In this situation, if you're a center with ECMO capabilities, that you would then offer veno-arterial ECMO for cardiac and pulmonary support in addition to the standard, which would be just CPR. The outcomes with eCPR in places that have consistent eCPR are actually pretty good. The neurologic outcomes are surprisingly good. There is a difference between in-hospital versus out-of-hospital arrest at the time of evaluation, and then there's also differences in terms of cardiac indications for eCPR versus others. So typically at our center, we do cardiac eCPR pretty relatively quickly, um, meaning that if a patient had cardiac surgery and they were still in the hospital, because we're far more prepared for that and are able to put them back on ECMO a lot uh, quicker. The other indications for eCPR that we typically employ are if I have a uh, trauma patient that comes in hypothermic and I'm trying to resuscitate them to an adequate temperature, we typically will place them on eCPR using uh, a veno-arterial approach. In patients who have arrest in hospital or out of hospital, it's really challenging to have adequate resources to put them on on ECMO uh, fast enough. There are centers that have developed uh, uh, ways of putting adults on eCPR using mobile technology. Um, typically the cannulations are performed by an emergency room physicians, but we don't really have that uh, capability at this point, especially not in pediatrics. Now that we've uh, decided that our patient needs ECMO, what is your go-to modality? VV or VA, and what's what, what makes you choose between one and the other? For respiratory failure, in general, I would say VV should be more than adequate to support someone on uh, ECMO for respiratory failure. The indications for me for VA are primarily related to uh, dysfunction, left-sided dysfunction of the heart. If they have really poor cardiac output and are on very high doses of pressors, then I consider VA. 
Now, if I don't have an appropriate size cannula on VV to put a patient on, and we'll discuss like the different cannulas in a second, then I would consider VA as an alternative because the goal is that if you have someone who is sick, they should just go on ECMO. You shouldn't worry that much of the differences between VA and VV. Now, the, why the hesitation at all between VA and VV? So for a long period of time, I think there was a dogma that somehow VA in neonates is safe, but VA in adolescents leads to a higher rate of strokes. In fact, when you look at the ELSA registry, the adolescents actually have a lower rate of stroke than uh, neonates. The highest rate of strokes and neurologic injury, which includes multiple things in the ECMO registry, uh, in the ELSA registry. So the ELSA registry differentiates uh, neurologic injury as stroke, bleed, uh, seizures, uh, brain death. Um, and so neurologic injury incorporates all of those. And so when you look at the highest rates of neurologic injury, there are neonates. And the highest rate of VA use is also neonates. In fact, if you plot out the curve and you look at risk of stroke with age, it actually goes down over time, not up. And so I think there was a lot of dogma that somehow VA is okay in neonates, but not okay in adolescents. I think if somebody is sick and they need to go on ECMO, just go on ECMO. I think um, the differences between the VA and VV actually overall numbers are the risk of neurologic injury with VA is 21%. The risk of neurologic injury with VV is 16%. So you're talking about a 5% difference with neurologic injury incorporating all of the above factors. So about one in five will have a neurologic injury. You just said two things that I was, I just learned. Uh, I was one of the people that was under the impression that the older patients had a higher risk of stroke. And so that's fascinating to know that that's not true because I was always more worried about doing uh, veno-arterial in an older patient. Uh, the second thing is that I was always under the impression that veno-arterial had a much higher rate of stroke than veno-venous. Uh, I mean, overall, yes, it does, because the percentages would say it's about 5% more higher rate of neurologic injury, and the percent increase in stroke, stroke uh, as defined in the ELSA registry, uh, gives you about 5.1% for VA and 3.5% for VV. So both groups have a risk of neurologic injury and stroke. So if you have somebody who's sick, I wouldn't worry about the 1.6% increase in stroke and the 5% increase in neurologic injury. I would put the patient on VA ECMO if that's what your that's capabilities amazing. are. Absolutely. Wow. So now that you're getting ready to cannulate, I want you to guide me through your thought process, and by this I mean peripheral versus central, percutaneous versus open, and then the different cannula types that you consider. Yep, no problem. So we may follow a few different hypothetical pathways uh, when we do this. So uh, let's pick uh, respiratory failure in a neonate who has adequate heart function. So at this point I'm thinking VV should be adequate support and I would approach the patient using a right neck approach and I would do a cut down open technique and ligate the 
internal jugular vein and place an origin cannula. Now let me walk you through my thought process on that. So percutaneous versus open. So the percutaneous cannulation is an okay strategy to use in neonates. Um, the problem is that you have to know exactly where the tip of your dilators are. The cannula dilators don't really come with a great marking on them and so you are at slightly higher risk of a perforation with dilation if you're doing this blindly. So if you're going to employ a percutaneous strategy you need to have uh, either fluoroscopy and or echo at the same time to identify where the tip of your dilator is or the tip of your or where your wire is going and I find it uh, much simpler to do a right neck open approach identify the internal jugular vein and uh, place the dilator uh, place the cannula through an open technique the other problem with a percutaneous technique in a neonate is that their veins are fairly fragile and small so the cannulas tend to be fairly snug in the uh, in the vein and so I find using the open technique I can gauge the largest size I can get in place safely a lot easier. Origin versus Avalon cannulas. So uh, for those who are not familiar an origin cannula has a uh, has two lumens and each uh, both of the lumens would end in the uh, SVC or RA junction and so typically the distal lumen that's a reperfusion is around the right atrium just above the tricuspid and the venous return is coming from the SVC. Now in a neonate that's more than adequate venous return because uh, and, and in fact it's probably more than adequate venous return for anyone who doesn't walk because the amount of the highest use okay the way I would describe it is that so what you're trying to get is the most deoxygenated blood from your system and that's primarily through your SVC at that point the IVC contribution to that deoxygenated blood is actually quite low in somebody who is not walking and is NPO and really uh, their primary use of oxygen is coming from their brain and their heart both of which are captured through that SVC so your origin cannula should be more than adequate in anyone who's say under 30 kilos I'm like totally surprised by that but like I'm embarrassed to say it out loud because Alex already knew that but I did not know that okay keep going right so the other thing to uh, consider is that the Avalon cannulas, the way they're made is that they have a bicaval uh, pathway. So they have three holes, one hole in the I SVC and one hole in the IVC, both used for venous return, and then one in the middle where you have reperfusion. So that reperfusion hole has to be in the right atrium. And the distance between all three of those are really small the smaller the cannula which would make sense that if you have a large cannula if you have a longer cannula they're going to be further apart you can't have them be far apart in a neonate and so you have to use a very small Avalon 
once you get below 19 French on the Avalon, the distances get so short that the likelihood that your cannula can flip out of position is far greater. So say you use an Avalon cannula in a neonate and the tip of your cannula is at the is in the uh, retrohepatic IVC. The distance between the tip of your cannula and the right atrium is, I think it's about like a, less than a centimeter at that point. It's actually described uh, really nicely in an article by Church and Jarbeau. They, uh, one of the figures highlights the differences between the cannula tip and the reperfusion holes for each of the various sizes of the Avalon. And the risk is that that retrohepatic IVC tip then flips over into the right atrium, which can potentially cause a lot of harm both physically as well as physiologically because you're no longer, you're now having recirculation of flow then. Uh, Samir, just to clarify, if the decision is made to do veno-venous ECMO, you have two choices if you're going to use a single cannula, uh, and that is an Avalon or an Origin. Is that correct? That's absolutely right. Or you could put it in two veins. You can. You have other risks that you, that you have to deal with then. If you use dual site cannulation, typically that's done using a femoral approach and an internal jugular vein. You have to do two cutdowns in a patient who's sick that you're trying to quickly go on ECMO. And then each of those has its own potential risks and hazards. The other thing is right. placing a femoral vein in a younger, smaller child is actually really difficult as anyone who's placed the Broviac in the uh, saphenous vein and femoral vein can tell you. Okay, so next hypothetical scenario. I have a, uh, let's say, 15-year-old who has respiratory failure and they are they have adequate cardiac function and I am placing a uh, in that situation I'm also going to do a venovenous but I would use an Avalon cannula. Typically for our Avalon cannulations we try to do them under fluoroscopy and echocardiography guidance both and that's due to a couple of different reasons. So first is that um, this we have the capacity to do these at the bedside, but if and when possible, we try to bring them down to the operating room because we have all of our tools readily available if we have difficulty. Why would we have difficulty? So one, the advantage of using an Avalon cannula in an older patient is that I do want to capture some of the flow from the IVC. So the IVC will have some more deoxygenated blood, their older patient, their you know, lower extremities and their gut and their kidneys are going to use a lot more oxygen and it would be nice to capture that in addition to the SVC deoxygenated blood. Second, uh, the Avalon is going to allow me to have a secure place such that they can get up and move around a little bit and potentially have early mobility while on ECMO. Wait, can you explain can you explain to me why the Avalon is more secure? Yeah, because it has both the uh, the SVC and the IVC and in an older patient it's a fairly long uh, cannula with reinforcements throughout. 
The other thing is the reinforcements are really helpful because in an older patient, that origin can kink in the neck uh, and you will intermittently lose flow. The newer ones do have some reinforcements, but the Avalon reinforcements seem to work so much better. So if I have a 15-year-old, how do we place the Avalon? So I use a ultrasound to access the internal jugular vein. I place a uh, regular... Um, so I, I tend to use a micropuncture kit, which uh, comes in uh, a smaller needles. It's uh, usually a 21 gauge um, that allows me to access using ultrasound guidance and then place what's called a cope wire, which is what comes in the kit. It's a, a straight wire where the end tip of it is very floppy. Once I have my cope wire in place, then I exchange that wire for a larger vi uh, wire that comes in the Avalon kit. Now, if I'm able to get that wire into the IVC, that's fantastic and I can move forward, but a lot of times I'm unable to advance it into the IVC, in, in which case I place what's called a comfy catheter, uh, KMP, and uh, that comfy catheter is, it's also K-U-M-F-E is another way. Now that comfy catheter can be used, uh, it has like a little bend at the end of it, and uh, the reason for that is that the SVC and the IVC aren't really a straight line. Uh, it's drawn that way on a lot of different diagrams, but they actually, if you look at from a lateral view, that IVC actually goes posterior a little bit. And so as I place the uh, catheter, I aim it posteriorly uh, towards the back, and then I try to advance my wire in, into position. If I'm using the comfy catheter, I'll also use an Avalon wire, uh, sorry, a, uh, a, a wire to place the Avalon catheter that's a lot stiffer. So you want the stiffest possible wire you can use because you don't want that wire to flip back out as you're advancing a large catheter into position. And so we'll use the comfy catheter to place our wire in and then over the top of that wire, we'll do our dilations and place the Avalon catheter. As soon as I have a wire in position into the IVC, I administer heparin, typically uh, 100 per kilo. If I have someone who's at uh, risk for bleeding, maybe I will use 50 per kilo, but almost always it's 100 per kilo of heparin. As I place the Avalon catheter, I'm watching it live so that uh, I know that it the wire is in place and that the catheter is going where I need it to go. Once it's in position, then I will inject some contrast through the reinfusion limb so that I can place the reinfusion just into the right atrium above the diaphragm, uh, so ab above the IVC-RA junction is kind of where I want it to sit. So that even if there's swelling in the neck where it's sutured in place, and it gets pulled up a little bit, is still in position. That cannula, I also confirm using echo to make sure it's in good position once I'm hooked up. You can usually see the reinfusion port and where it's positioned. The other thing is on fluoro, the middle hepatic vein and the retrohepatic IVC tend to line up. 
And so if you're able to use a slightly different angle, you may be able to tell, but on echo, you'll be clearly able to see where the hepatic veins come into the IVC and that your cannula is actually sitting appropriately in the IVC. This has allowed us to like completely not worry about dislodgement of the Avalon catheters or any complications that we were seeing when we initially started using it. So we've all adopted this approach and we've actually limited our, our providers in terms of who places these cannulas so that we can continue to maintain expertise. So Dr. Gadapali, are there any specifics for cannulation when you're considering VA ECMO? Uh, excellent question. So VA or veno-arterial ECMO. So I, I think the dogma uh, that we talked about earlier around uh, the risk of stroke, I think I want to restress this because we've kind of gone away from using a lot more femoral cannulations for our VA, which is uh, very different from a lot of other centers. And uh, primary reasons are that, so veno-arterial ECMO for femoral does have its own risks. One is that there's a 16% risk of limb loss or uh, lower extremity injury secondary to the ECMO cannulation. So a lot of centers, so if you place a femoral arterial cannula to reinfuse, then you have to use what's called a reperfusion cannula. So the reperfusion cannula can be done several different ways. One description has been use of a catheter that goes integrate uh, from the femoral vessels. The downsides are that this cannula that you're using to reperfuse may flip into the profunda and not have adequate perfusion into the SFA system all the way below. Another approach that's been described is using the posterior tibial, tibial artery using either a cut down or a percutaneous approach to place a reperfusion cannula that goes retrograde up the leg. The downsides are that if somebody has a diseased segment of one of the other outflow vessels for your lower extremity, that also increases risk because now you've used up one of your major outflow vessels uh, with the PT. So there's relative downsides beyond uh, just the lower extremity injury, there's been an increased association of pulmonary and GI complications with lower extremity VA compared to aortic or carotid VA within the ELSA registry. The other thing with uh, femoral arterial cannulations are that you're relying on the fact that your heart function has dropped down. So your femoral artery is now supplying uh, oxygenated blood for your whole body. As soon as your heart function picks back up, you now have what's called north-south syndrome or deoxygenated blood that's now being potentially de delivered from your heart in competition with your femoral artery. And so the brain is actually receiving blood from your heart, which has less oxygen within it than your femoral artery circulation where your lower extremity is receiving a lot more oxygenated blood. And so you, rel you have relative hypoxia with your upper extremity and brain which is the area which you really want to perfuse. And so if you have that, then uh, most people advocate for placing a right internal jugular vein catheter to reperfuse oxygenated blood into your heart, which could then be delivered to the rest of your body. We typically employ a carotid uh, approach for your veno-arterial circulation. And so that involves a cut down of the neck, placing a veno-arterial the downside of using any kind of percutaneous approach for the arterial cannulation is that your 
intima and media may uh, separate with the size of these cannulas that you're trying to insert. So as you insert them percutaneously, you worry about shear injury and potentially thrombus forming down there, as well as when you remove the cannula, you worry about that actually increasing the risk. We do not repair the carotid artery after any of our cannulations. That has been described at some centers as an approach for at the time of decannulation, they will do a reperfusion of the carotid. We do not do carotid repair. Uh, this has actually been associated with an increased risk of uh, strokes and a neurologic injury. And so uh, typically we just ligate the carotid during placement of a venoarterial cannula. The other things to consider is in uh, patients who have uh, VA ECMO, you can also have left heart dysfunction secondary to uh, increased afterload from the cannula being in position, and this may require a arteriotomy where you decompress the left side back into your right side. This can be done percutaneously using cardiac catheterization at this point. Okay, so Dr. Gadapali, we've talked about cannulation techniques and sites and all the different types of cannulas. Just to close this topic, in other hardware for ECMO, What's the top of the line right now for membranes and for pumps? Yeah, I mean, I think that depends on who you talk to and which devices you're most accustomed to. Typically, uh, we use centrifugal pumps for all of our patients. There are some centers that have not uh, adopted a centrifugal pump and still use roller pumps, especially in neonates. So the differences are that the roller pump is associated with higher uh, negative pressures in terms of drainage, and typically you have to pl place the patient uh, at much higher levels to help with gravity inflow. Usually use a bladder so that you don't have negative pressures that are creating cavitation, which is pulling the air out of the blood by adding negative pressure as you drain the venous outflow. Roller pumps tend to be less efficient. The downside of centrifugal pumps is that uh, there's been some reports that have noted that they have higher incidence of hemolysis, and that typically is due to turning up your RPMs. And so if you maintain your RPMs adequately, we actually have decreased our rate of hemolysis on centrifugal pumps compared to roller pumps, even in neonates. And so for us, our biggest issue with centrifugal pumps has been that there was a learning curve after which we've learned that our drainage for the venous site is so efficient that if we're having difficulty, we should either provide more volume or check if we have adequate amounts being delivered. So what I typically find is, especially neonates, that the SVO2, this is the saturation of the venous system on the other side is in the high 80s and someone is tr still trying to crank up the dial to increase the flow because the blood pressure is relatively low. And in this situation, uh, what you find is you have adequate cardiac output. Your oxygen delivery is excellent. If your SVO2 is 82 on VA, then your tissues are receiving more than enough oxygen such that either your extraction is poor, you can check that using a lactate, or you have adequate delivery and therefore you have more than enough oxygen returning back in your venous system. And so 
if you have an adequate SVO2 and your lactate is okay, we would typically just start a low-dose presser to address the low blood pressure rather than trying to crank up the dial further. I hope that explained it. So now that our patient has been cannulated and we know all of this about the circuit, what is it that we're monitoring every day? What numbers to look at and what labs to follow? Yeah, great. So when you show up to a patient who's on ECMO and you're maintaining them, things to look for or numbers to ask about would be what is the flow? And so some a neonate, let's say, who is fully supported on ECMO will have a flow approximately 100 per kilo. If they're well above 100 per kilo in terms of flow, you have to look at the SVO2 and determine if you have too much flow that you don't actually need that much or there's something else going on, specifically sepsis. If you have a single ventricle, they may require higher flows, but otherwise you should be somewhere around the 100 per kilo. Typically on BV ECMO, their flow is going to be closer to 120 per kilo to adjust for the fact that there may be some more recirculation that's happening. The next number to look at is a sweep. So, uh, so you look at the flow, you look at the SVO2, you look at the sweep. The sweep is the sweep gas. And the way ECMO works is that you have a oxygen membrane. On one side, you have a flow of 100% oxygen. On the other side, you have blood. And what's happening right now is that your CO2 diffuses really fast across the membrane, just like it does in your lungs. And so the sweep gas is how quickly do you have gas sweeping away the carbon dioxide on the gas side of the membrane. And so if you have a higher sweep, you're getting rid of CO2 on the side with the gas in the membrane really quickly. So your CO2 level would be low, and so therefore more CO2 would diffuse from the blood side across the membrane into the gas side, if that makes sense. So the higher the sweep, the more CO2 you're getting rid of in your blood. The lower the sweep, the less CO2 you're trying to get rid of from the blood. So in somebody who's like ready to come off of ECMO, their sweep is going to be close to like 0.1 per kilo. If they're getting fair amount of support on ECMO, their sweep is going to be far greater. So I think knowing what that sweep value is helps you determine how much ventilation is being provided by the ECMO circuit versus how much is going to be done by the lungs themselves. The next thing to look at is your heparin uh, level. And so heparin is still the mainstay of anticoagulation. That hopefully will change in the near future to direct thrombin inhibitors, but that's probably a talk for a different day. Typically, we still use ACT as our primary mode of anticoagulation monitoring at the bedside. There are centers that use anti-10A as well as other adjuncts such as checking anti-thrombin 3 levels and so forth. So typically, we will just place them on a heparin infusion and monitor ACTs. Uh, if I have a patient that I'm concerned about bleeding, then I might keep their ACTs on the lower side, which would be somewhere around 170 to 190. If I'm not as concerned about, anti, uh, about bleeding issues with my anticoagulation, then I'll keep their ACTs on the higher side, which may be uh, 210 to 230. So if I place someone on... ECMO today, not really worried about bleeding issues. I want to maintain the circuit. I'll keep them at 210 to 230. Now, 
in efforts to get to 210, 230, they'll have to turn up the heparin drip. If I'm finding that the heparin drip continues to escalate without changes in the ACTs, I would suspect that there's an antithrombin-3 deficiency, and I would consider replacing antithrombin-3. Now, that can be done one of two ways. One way is to actually give them concentrated antithrombin-3, which could be fairly expensive. Another approach would be to give them FFP, which has antithrombin-3 in it, which, uh, which could uh, result in an excess amount of volume being given. If it's early in the course of ECMO, many times they can use the additional volume, and so I typically will just use plasma to uh, replace their antithrombin-3 deficiency. So sepsis, neonates probably have increased risk of having antithrombin-3 deficiency. The other problem you'll encounter is that the heparin is being turned down and your ACTs remain high. If your heparin infusion is less than 10, I get really concerned that the ACT is not adequately reflective of your anticoagulation that you have or don't have at this stage. And so I will ask them to check an anti-10A level to double check where I am. So if your heparin level is really low or your heparin level is really high, look for trouble. Another factor to look at on a daily basis are there are some centers that do uh, routine blood cultures on patients who are there suspecting sepsis because the typical things that you would look to identify in someone who has an acute infection may be masked while on ECMO. And so uh, if someone is at high risk for infection, that's a strategy that some people employ. Other things to look at would be head ultrasounds. Typically in our neonates, we do them far more frequently, two to three times a week, versus in our older children, we do them less frequently. And if their suture line is closed, obviously head ultrasounds are not going to be helpful. Finally, you're just looking at standard parameters in terms of deciding if their lung functions are improving. So a chest x-ray, we will keep them on rest settings until we start to see evidence that we have aeration of the lungs. Once there's aeration of the lungs, then we'll start them on recruitment settings to increase their lung pressures and see if we can get more lung tissue in play and then consider trialing them in the next day or two if we have adequate ventilation support with the lungs alone. Awesome. Now that you've said that, what other factors make you think that a patient's ready to come off of ECMO? What's your checklist? So chest x-ray looks good. You have adequate lung volumes, so anywhere between 4 to 6 ml per kilo at a relatively modest ventilator setting would be ideal. And then modest ventilator setting meaning that somewhere where the peak pressures are below 30 and I'm not as worried about lung injury because the whole purpose of ECMO is to allow the lungs to rest. If there's no other factors pushing me to come off of ECMO, such as complications that have occurred on ECMO, then I will probably employ a more conservative strategy to come off of ECMO versus if I have bleeding issues or if I'm having circuit issues, then that may push me a little bit to allow for slightly higher settings to come off of ECMO. I will, on VV ECMO, is super easy to trial every day. All you do is remove the sweep gas, and that ventilation is now, that oxygenation ventilation is now being provided by the lungs themselves. And so that is a really easy to trial them on VV every day if necessary. And so uh, I'm more aggressive about trialing on VV than I am about VA. 
on VA, it's a little bit more difficult to trial on VA. You have to clamp the circuit for a period of time, check their blood gases, and see how it goes. Typically, we will do that for less than four hours to try to decrease the risk that they have both circuit injury or clots that develop at the site of the clamping that then go systemically. And so our trials on VA are usually a quick, easy way to figure out the bedside is that typically while you're resting the lungs, your FiO2 is pretty close to room air. If you turn it up to 100% immediately, you can see what happens with your oxygen saturation on the monitor. Say, for example, your FiO2 is uh, 21% and their oxygen saturation is 95 while you're on ECMO. And I just go to 100% on the ventilator. If your oxygen saturation hits 100%, you're probably ready to trial. You have more than adequate alveoli. That's a quick, easy test to do. Another approach would be to uh, do low flows for a period of time. Drop your flows down to, you know, say 50 per kilo if you have still adequate flows to maintain your circuit and see what happens with your oxygenation. And that'll give you a measure of uh, how well you're doing. Awesome. So now that you've determined that you're ready to come off of ECMO, this may be a dumb question, but how do you actually come off of ECMO? What are the steps to remove the cannulas and stop the circuit? Yeah, so depending on how worried you are in terms of coming off of ECMO, there are settings where we will actually cut away from the circuit. And what that means is that after a trial, we just run heparin through the cannulas, but leave the cannulas in place. And they're no longer connected to the ECMO circuit, but the cannulas remain in place so that if the patient failed within the next 24 hours, we could hook them right back up. How do we actually come off of ECMO. The decannulation process, if it's percutaneous, is super easy. You just pull out the cannula and hold pressure, and typically we use a purse string of silk at the skin level. If it's a open approach, it involves a cut down and ligation distally of the vessels through which the cannulas uh, go through. And patients during the trial, like I mentioned before, venovenous, you just uh, trial them with the sweep gas off and see how much their native lungs have taken over. In patients who are on VA, you do clamping where we check the blood gases anywhere between 15 minutes to half hour to one hour apart to determine uh, what their need of function is like. Every 15 minutes or so, we flash the cannulas, meaning we unclamp them and then reclamp them to make sure that we don't have stagnant, stagnant flow at the side of the cannulas. So Dr. Gattapalli, what are your thoughts on procedures during ECMO? And by these, I mean things like uh, chest tubes, but also things like bronchoscopies. I would say procedures on ECMO uh, don't. If you can avoid it, don't do it. So we don't usually put in IVs, put in chest tubes, do anything. If you're close to coming off, if you're going to do a procedure, that would be the time because if you had a bleeding issue, you can come off of ECMO and then deal with it, uh, deal with the bleeding issue. Why you're on ECMO, I would say avoid procedures at all costs. Now, in terms of bronchoscopies, I think of them as less risky than a chest tube placement. A chest tube placement, you're going right past the intercostal vessels, and those are very hard to control. In terms of a bronchoscopy, we will routinely do bronchoscopies while we're on ECMO. We'll try, it, especially if they have respiratory failure from, uh, say, a viral infection, they'll have a fair amount of plugging. 
The other thing you want to do is if you have bleeding in the lungs, you do want to do a bronchoscopy early and remove the blood because removing clot is a lot harder to do. We will do a fair amount of mucolytic therapy while we're on ECMO. There isn't a strong data for it per se, but uh, it's been very useful for us to like help maintain the airways. Dr. Gattapalli, what are the current outcomes uh, regarding mortality in ECMO? I think when you think about outcomes on ECMO, what you're doing is what's the trade-off? So you can't think about it independent of the inherent mortality of someone who's going to go on. So what was your other option is to continue on the ventilator. So there's been several prospective studies that have been done to assess ECMO mortality versus continued management. And uh, at this point, not to beat a dead horse, but uh, if you have progressive respiratory failure, especially ARDS, I think ECMO is absolutely an option. And depending on your center, I think if you have the capabilities, you should consider early ECMO versus moving them to a center that has ECMO uh, so they can determine if ECMO is necessary. Dr. Gaudapalli, this has been a great podcast, and Dr. Ponsky has been excited this whole time. Uh, what is your take-home messages for our audience? If somebody is sick, don't be afraid to put them on ECMO. Call for help early. Oxygen index, oxygenation index is a good measure of respiratory failure. Be careful with the use of the Avalon catheter. Have adequate visualization of the tip using fluoroscopy and echocardiography. Dr. Gaudapalli, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a very educational podcast, and I'm pretty sure that for any residents out there listening, uh, this will make you look really good in front of your attendings next time you call them in the middle of the night. Well, I'm happy to be available for anybody out there who has additional questions. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Stay Current. You can listen, watch, or read our content at any time by downloading the Stay Current app. See you next time.